I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. doing listeners adam buxton here guess where i am no wrong as if come on i wouldn't go there if you paid me well i might go there if you paid me but i'm not i'm in norfolk surprise it's in east angular uk and i'm walking in a field really mixing things up this week out with my um best dog friend Truth be told, probably my only dog friend, Rosie. She's up ahead investigating possibilities for socialising with undesirables. After which she will probably zip off for about 45 minutes and not respond to my calls. And then turn up later on at the house acting weirdly, running around rolling on the floor and um, jumping on the table and jumping off again as if she's been taking crank with the rabbits which uh, may well be what she gets up to or she's just stung her paws on some nettles and is regretting it but that's Rosie everything else is uh, more or less back to normal here I guess relatively speaking after last week's crazy snow fun rather a grey day today Another one. Anyway, listen, I know you love weather chat, but let me tell you about podcast number 67. An emotional roller coaster. We go through all the different feelings on this one, I would say, with Irish actor, stand up comedian, and writer Ashling B, who I sat down with in early January of this year, 2018, and we swapped foreign location filming stories, uh, compared notes on the comedy gig where we first met, at which there was rather a weird battle of principles with the organiser. You'll hear about that. Uh, Ashling also told me about her early comedy influences growing up in Ireland and her experiences performing at university. We also talked about weird on-set behaviour confrontations and the value of difficult conversations and towards the end of the podcast I asked Ashling about the article she wrote last year for the Guardian newspaper in which she described losing her father when she was very young and how she dealt and has continued to deal with learning the truth about his death years later. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a little more inconsequential waffle but right now here we go. Ramble chat, let's have a ramble chat. We'll focus first on this, then concentrate on that. Come on, let's chew the fat and have a ramble chat. Put on your conversation coat and find your talking hat. Yes, yes, yes.
Are we starting now? Yeah. Oh, this is it. This is this it. This is a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Hi, Adam. Hey, how are you doing, <laughs> Ashling? Not too bad, Adam. Good to see you. Good to see you also good. Thanks for coming along. Ah, you know. What have you got there? I've got um, a, an immunity. Immunity. Yeah, which is great branding, I have to say. Yeah. And it, it does smell like arse. Uh, if I'm honest, uh-huh. like no offense, thanks for making it for me. Like but, an ass, like a, a clean ass, or an, a dirty. No, I'd say festival. A dirty bottom. I'd say day two of latitude or something like yeah. that, maybe. But I'm sure it's going to be really good for me. Do you only drink bum tea, or, or do you do you like? Actual... I'd be partial to a bum tea. Um, do you yeah. go for the occasional builders. You, is it no caffeine with you? Oh no, no, I need caffeine. I think that's what most of my personality is based on. I like if something is uh, doing two things at once, you know, like a Hoover that's also a hairdryer yeah. or something like that. Um, so how do you mean as far as tea goes? Like though? I'm having a hot drink and there's a bit of caffeine in it. And it also is, you know. Flushing out your. Flushing out, yeah, the front. Flushing out your toilet area. Yeah, my toilet area. That came out wrong. It must be great to make love to you, Adam. <laughs> I didn't mean to That's not what I meant. I was actually thinking about your. I was thinking about your internal, your guts, and I don't know. I haven't been I out got the to house. see her toilet area. It was delightful. Adam, <laughs> <laughs> tell me more. I've been at home uh, since <laughs> New Year. I am. I. Uh, I've never had wanderlust. So I've never, like, I love being in my house. And so whenever people are like, you go and look at the mountains and, or, you know, uh, Machu Picchu, South America, I'm like, yeah, but like you can see it on Google Maps now from your house and you don't have to leave. Because my thing is, if I go on holidays, you come back, you have a real sadness of, you know, the post-holiday blues. Yeah. But if you never go on holidays, you never That's not have the to right have post-holiday attitude. blues. So are you someone who doesn't get into relationships because you don't want them to end? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's really nice. That's so much nicer just to stay in a constant state of numbness and stagnancy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're engaged in a ongoing exercise, which we call life, which mm-hmm. has a bad ending. Does it? Oh, no, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell Spoiler. me. Spoiler. <laughs> but do you not, you, you genuinely don't like travelling or anything like that? I, it's not that I don't like travelling. I think what it is, is I've, my, our job, this is going to sound so wankery, our job sort of makes you travel the world in such exciting ways and sometimes not physically. Like at work, sometimes you get to be an alien space commander or mm-hmm. someone from a different country or you get to speak with a different voice. So you get to be and do all these silly things or you get to go on stage near your house and do comedy to 6,000 people. And that sort of is such a heightened experience that not everyone gets to do that sometimes being in your house is sort of nice to chill from that. Um, and so maybe my whole life I've wanted to perform since I was a kid. And so all of my energy has been driven towards that. So I always panicked about ever going on holiday or going traveling in case a job came up or an audition came in because oh, that was the okay. exciting thing. Like, that right. was the thing that got me up in the morning and that I did the weird waitressing jobs for and stuff like that. Yeah. So maybe uh, only in the last year and a half I was doing a thing called Gap Year. It was Tom Basden's show, the Tom Basden role with oh, Tim Oh, yeah, Key. yeah. But yeah, I, I went to Malaysia with that for a month and it was yeah. really nice to have, for someone to pay you to do your job to a job with a job you wanted to do and you got to travel because I I did once I was in Malaysia I felt oh I do regret a little bit if I could go back in a time machine and tell my out of work actor self to actually 
use that the only thousand pounds in your bank account to maybe go and see something because you get so scared mm. that if you go on holiday when you're an out of work actor or spend money that well what then if you don't get a job for a year or so what was Malaysia like? Oh, Malaysia was nuts. It's very, like we were in Kuala Lumpur. I'm not genetically supposed to be in Malaysia. Um, I was a very sweaty, sweaty woman for one month. I've never felt like I was walking through water before. I remember one day I got caught in, um, they have these rainstorms just out of nowhere. And I got caught in it. And I was with this other actor called Tristan Gravel, a Welsh actor. And the two of us, uh, we're like, oh, it's like one of those rom-coms running through a rainstorm. And then after about five minutes, we're like, we're drowning. We're physically drowning in the street from standing. And I couldn't understand why loads of people were looking at me <laughs> as I was trying to make it back to my apartment. And I realised that I'd been soaked through and not only could you see my bra, my, uh, you could pretty much see my toilet bits. All the stuff. And I also had these uh, knickers on, which are just very comfortable, but they do say on the back of them, I love America for some reason. I wear them a lot out of comfort. And so I was so through with these knickers that you could see through the rainstorm saying, I love America. Ironicus. Running through the streets of, yeah, Kuala Lumpur. Wow. Were you shooting on location? Yeah, yeah. really sweat. I mean, really obviously you sweaty. were shooting on location. Yeah, we were actually, what's the point in being? Well, you say that, but we were, so when I, fl- when I flew out, and I mean, this is a bit of backstage uh, gossip. If you're, if you watch the show and um, there's a scene with myself and Tristan and our first scene is on the wall of China. Mm-hmm. And so we are inside a tent and the lead characters kind of come over and hear us fighting in a tent on the wall of China. And there was one thing we knew flying out was like, we're going to go and see the wall of China. Yeah. And we arrive and they're like, guys, we can't get the, um, just can't get the visas. So we're going to do it um, in a car park and we're going to shoot the other side with people looking into the tent on the wall of China. So we actually did our scenes looking at a Tesco in Kuala Lumpur in the distance in Malaysia. And then they reshot the other side using doubles at the wall of China. Did you even get to go to the wall? No, no, we couldn't get into China. Right. Yeah. Visas were really difficult to get. So it wasn't just for the filming. God. Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah, we, me and Joe years ago um, went to New Zealand to do a uh, washing powder commercial. Of course. uh, Back in the day when we... Who would trust you? Like, no offence. No, absolutely. But I wouldn't be like, well, if Adam watches his (laughs) toilet area stains. Exactly. (laughs) We're using that one. Who are the the most fragrant... Clean comedians. I've never felt around. it was dirty. That must be because of the laundry detergent. I mean, I looked a little less dirty in those days. I was at least clean mm. shaven. But anyway, somehow it was one of the many jobs I've done <laughs> that I would imagine ended in sacking for a lot of the executives involved. <laughs> and they get you out there. You've got to go. It's amazing. Beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful place. Lovely people. But it's a long way away. And uh, anyway, they, they flew us out at great expense and we were there for two weeks because they wanted to shoot on location in what looked like the British countryside, but on a beautiful sunny day. What? And they wanted to do it in January. So they thought, well, the only place we can guarantee the kind of scenery we need and the kind of weather we need at this time oh, of year God. is New Zealand. Yeah. So at huge expense, they flew the whole production out there. Me and Joe and Keith Harrison Orville. We're going to star in this ad. And it was an ad for... A natural combo. Of course. It was an ad for washing up powder. And we did a few of them. And the conceit was that Joe and I, being mischievous 
pranksters that we are, <laughs> what a know, pair of sprites! Not really, would would sort of torture um, celebrities, annoying celebrities, and get them filthy in order that surf or whatever the washing powder was would get mm. them clean thereafter. And so for this ad. Keith Harris and Orville were going to be dunked into a huge bowl of pea soup, right? Yeah. Out yeah. in the middle of the countryside <laughs> on a sunny day. We were going to catapult Keith Harris and Orville into some pea soup and then pull them out all dripping and, and filthy. And then Surf was going to clean them really nicely again. <laughs> and did it work? So it rained every single day oh, for lads. two weeks. Oh, no. And we, for the first few days, sat inside a caravan out in the middle of the Wairarapa, <laughs> which is this beautiful countryside where they shot a lot of the Lord of the Rings stuff. Yeah. You, know, you know, we go to Wellington. We stay in, in a lovely hotel in Wellington for a couple of nights. Then we go out, drive out to the Wairarapa to film, pouring with rain. But they're still like, okay, well, we got to get a break at some point. We didn't. So it was just me and Joe sat in a caravan chatting to Keith Harris about... And Orville, presumably. You didn't ignore him. Uh, Orville was generally in his suitcase. It was just Keith, God rest him, oh. who was chatting to us and saying, asking why people didn't think he was cool. Oh, no. And <laughs> in a caravan. That's, yeah. That sounds like, do you know, this is going to seem like a very high end reference for me. Uh, there's a Jean-Paul Sartre play called We Low, which means no exit. And they, he describes what hell is. And his idea of hell is three people in a room where you can't escape. Yeah. And no one can close their eyes. And it's just a stiflingly warm room. But that you can never have any unity with three people. So two people are either going to gang up on each other or in yes. a debate, there's never going to be unity. And that sounds to me like you and Joe and Keith with Orville trapped in a suitcase in a caravan in the rain in New Zealand sounds mm. a little like hell. It wasn't relaxing. He's Why a, am he, I not cool? He was a nice guy, but he mm. was um, he was too keen to be. You know, he was asking us like, "Why don't ask us yeah. how you get to be cool?" For goodness' sake, he was like, "What should I do to be cool?" Oh. Was one thing he said, and we're, and we're like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, I've just been offered. Uh, he said, I've just been offered. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. And uh, did you discourage him from doing it? No, I said, mate, definitely do it. And he's like, no, it's so tacky, isn't it? I mean, if you go on a show like that, everyone thinks your career is over. It's just too desperate. No, no, no. And then a couple of months after we got back, I'm a celebrity. Mm. Had gone out, yeah. minus Keith Harris. Then I see him on another reality show on Channel 4, and I think it was called The Farm. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And celebrities had to, like, to clean out stables. Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. Do you, uh, Rebecca Luz, do you but, remember her? Yes, yes, and yes. And she got in trouble because she was forced to masturbate a pig or something. And... Yeah, which, listen, we've all done. Hello, my friend, it's good to see you again. I've got to say you're looking great. I love what you've done with your nipples and your knees and your shiny bald pate. (laughs) 
You were talking about the first time we met each other, Adam. Yes. I do remember it. And I also remember, again, because I'm not into comedy, like even when I was telling people, I was like, oh, I'm doing Adam's podcast today. People love you so much. Quite like, right. People, I don't get it myself. No. But um, like to me, you're just a guy in a hoodie. Yeah. Um, who spent January in his house. But um, For January, did you say? For January. Well, I was doing No Men Vember, then I did December, and I followed that up with a January. Yeah. Um, just to kind of uh, open up my uh, uh, market, I suppose. Oh, steady on. Um, and uh, <laughs> my toilet area. Open <laughs> up my market. Oh, Adam. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, we did, we did a gig which was sponsored by Converse Shoes. Yes. In this pub in, I think it was Camden or Kilburn or yeah, somewhere was yeah, it? Yeah, Kilburn. And again, people, like people have this awe of you because they, they listen to the Adam and Joe show. But again, because I was in, I, I, I miss out loads of references in the UK in general. Uh-huh. Not growing up here, having only two Irish channels growing up until I was 18, then being at university in Ireland, just moving here and not knowing who all these sort of big names, even Orville and stuff like that. I knew after the fact, right. after I didn't grow up watching them on TV. Um but yeah, so there's this like, Adam Buxton's hosting it. Cool. And yes, I was emceeing. You were emceeing it, but the, yeah. But the Converse connection was really not mm. trumpeted. It was, the no. gig was called Get Winterized. Yes. And yeah, yeah. it was sold to me via my agent as mm. just a gig. A gig, me too. Yeah. A comedy gig. But actually what it was, uh, the, the, gig, the gig was just the chocolatey, yummy shell covering mm. a little bitter kernel of trying to market Converse trainers. Yeah. It was myself, yourself, Tim Key. I can't remember who else was on the bill. Uh, Tom Crane. Oh, Tom Crane. Lloyd Langford. Lloyd Langford. Abandoman. Abandoman. First time yeah. I'd seen them. Oh, brilliant. they were brilliant. Cardinal Burns. Yeah. It was a good bill. It was a good bill. And we were all only doing small little spots. Yeah. And there was like a young, trendy crowd there. And we all kind of turned up. And, and it was an outdoor an area. An outdoor area. So we're all wearing gloves. And it was and really I, cold. And they were trying to promote Converse that have wool inside them. So they're warm. Right. So winter converse, which is a fine idea. And they were all and we were told, I was told I'd probably get a free pair of yeah, shoes. They'd asked for our shoe sizes yes, before. So delighted. But yeah. then when we turn up to the gig, they try to make us wear the converse on stage. And we, as if we're like in Band of Brothers or something like that, like, no, we won't be bought. I mean, we're already being bought, but we won't be told what to do. We won't be bought further. <laughs> we won't be bought further than the original price. <laughs> of course not. Thank you very much. We would still like the free shoes. Of course we would. And we'd be very grateful for them, but we don't want to do what you want us to do right now. Exactly. I felt sorry for them, though, because it was really random. If you ever look at comedians' shoes on stage were nearly all always wearing Converse. And I felt really sorry for them that, that particular night, yeah. none of us happened to be wearing Converse because it's the winter, but we're all nearly always wearing them. But th- that's the thing. They went about it in a really, really weird way. way. Because yeah. as you say, I mean, I personally have obviously, you know, I've got no qualms about endorsing things Ooh. to a certain degree as long as they're not yeah. absolutely heinous. But um, free stuff, yeah, great, fine. And... As you say, if if they'd flagged it beforehand, by mm-hmm. the way, do you mind wearing a, you know. Yeah, like, oh, but okay. it turned into this big Watergate moment and we were all going, it's not part of our costume. I, I can't wear something else. They sort of came over first. Stage. It was, yeah. it was, it was two women, I remember. They were kind of glam women and they had big furry hats on. Yeah, very markety people. Yeah. yeah. In the olden days, they would have been carrying trays of cigarettes. Kind yeah. Of thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> but they came over with uh, a couple of boxes of the shoes and it was all like, hey, thanks for coming. It's really great to have you here. They were very nice. Mm. And they said, you know, here are the shoes. 
And I was like, oh, thanks very much. And they were like, well, do you want to put them on now? Oh, I won't put them on right now, but thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll have them later mm-hmm. on, you know. Oh, it'd be great if you could put them on now. Oh, no, that's okay. Thanks. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> oh, they really want you to put them on. Oh, well, I really would rather not. And it just suddenly started going a bit weird. And then they mm. left and then a bloke came back. Yeah. And he was like the sort of main... I'd really like you to fucking put these shoes on, mate. <laughs> he wasn't like that. He was nice too. And he was like... Yeah, everyone hey, was really sweet. Hey, I'm such a big fan. Thanks for doing this. He was dead nice. Mm. He was like, please put them on. It's really important to us that you put them on. I was like, why? And we all kind of ganged up together as it well. It was ridiculous. And it turned into this big standoff. Yeah. And I ended up sort of having a row with this guy. I really don't have... And we were really happy because you were the biggest name on the bill. And I was like, I can't say no because I don't want to on point of principle. I don't like being randomly told what to do. It's hilarious for marketing. But I knew if you said yes, then it would put like the lower status people in a bit of an awkward position down the line that we'd all have to say yes, Adam did it. So when you did it, I was like, oh, Adam said no, cool. <laughs> the, the leader has spoken, we can all, you know, you're like Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan. I'm, yes. I mean, I, I choose my causes very carefully. Yeah. I thought, well, this is the big one. This is yeah, the big this important. Is the one, this is the one that's worth This doing. is the big important cause and I'm going to stand behind it uh, <laughs> every step of the way. I'm not putting on those nice Converse shoes. But in the end, the guy was like, I'm I'm going to get fired if you don't put them on. Yeah. And I said, fuck off. Yeah. That's, that's not fair. When so, when I get really, if someone ever victim complexes me, that is the opposite way to get me to do yeah, anything. Yeah, exactly. If someone, like say if I have a friend who's like, oh, I hear you can't come to my birthday party. <sighs> Just I feel like I never see you anymore. I'm like, right, I'm out. Never coming to a single birthday party of yours again. Yeah. I hate when people use victimising and to, to get me on side in any way, that just does not work no. for me. So that's, I think, when we all, we were like, yeah, well, we hope you get fired, mate. <laughs> it was crazy because I was like, listen, obviously none of us want you to get fired. No. But you aren't going to get fired. And yeah. anyone who would fire you, that's not a job worth having then, then anyway. It, then we really don't want to be associated with your yeah. brand. And it's not like, you know, this is a kind of struggling yeah. single parent. I'm going to go back to my starving kids tonight and they're not going to be able to eat yeah, unless you put these cool shoes guys, on. Cool you know, it was youngsters. all hipster central. So it was just ridiculous. And I felt sorry as well for the guy, for him, because he had been told, he was this young guy who had to come over and deal with like a seven seven strong-willed comedians who were saying, (laughs) no, wait. And also, we just won't do the gig. We're fine for gigs. And God love him to have to come over and try and convince us. But it was a principle of the thing of being told to slightly undress our feet in the cold. It was silly. No, 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 where do you come from in Ireland? Kildare, which um, is about an hour outside of Dublin. It's a horsey area of Ireland. Okay. It's where horses are from, Adam. Yeah. You know horses? Yeah, I love them. You'd meet loads of them in the Kildare. The horse community. And um, mm-hmm. did you have a horse? Uh, we grew up around, my mother's a retired jockey. Oh, really? flat race jockey. Yeah. And then my father was an equine vet, which is a horse vet. Um, so we oh, were wow. just horses, horses, horses. Horse central. Horse central. And my grandfather and granny were farmers and had loads of horses and rode horses. So we had a field out the back of our house. And so lots of people would like leave their horses in our field. Yeah. And then we were surrounded by horses and that my mother would go and ride out uh, most mornings when I was growing up. Horses, so was, horses, horses. Run around, run and turn and pluck. Oh, what's that song? What is that song? Patty Smith. Patty Smith. That is it. Suddenly, Johnny. Surrounded by, yeah, I've gone basically, I've put 
I've edited that song together in my head in different orders. And so when you say that you weren't um, aware of the sort of comedy scene so much when you were growing up, when did you start to get aware of the Irish comedy scene and who were the people that were I around? No, it's odd. I was talking to someone about this recently. I grew up in a single parent family. And so, and we grew up in the countryside. So in the countryside, it was just myself, my sister and my mother. And almost like when you grow up in a bunker, that's your whole world and that's your whole understanding of the world. And we had two TV stations. So that was our only sort of cultural input. Whatever my mother liked, that was the only thing we knew. We didn't have a second opinion in the house or we didn't have a second. Like I miss out loads of stuff, which is sort of gender stereotyping a little bit, but I've missed out on loads of stuff that people's fathers would have taught them. So Star Wars, never seen Star Wars. Don't know who Johnny Cash is. To this day? No. Still to this day. Really? Yeah, I know. I'm probably going to get a lot of hate on that uh, from your uh, listeners. But I um, (laughs) am. Just because I didn't have a father. So we had RT1 and RT2, which is the two Irish television stations. And anything that came in through them, that was all I knew. Like Billy Connolly would be on once or twice, but I didn't even know that was stand up. He was that Scottish man that everyone seemed to like and told stories. I didn't know what stand up was. And then on TV, when I was about 16 or 17, I, I remember... My mother was a teacher as well and she brought a tour of like teenagers to Paris on a school tour to go to Euro Disney and we had to go with her because there's no one to mind us. So we kind of tagged along with all these teenagers and when I was uh, there we were staying with these sort of French friends of the family and they had Channel 4 and I'd never seen Channel 4 before Mm. and I must have been maybe about 12 and my mother and my sister went to bed and I turned on Channel 4 and there was this tidal wave of filth. What I couldn't believe was Uh, This story, this TV show that was funny with Irish actors in it about priests making jokes. And I couldn't, like I could not believe, because it wasn't shown on Irish TV. Wasn't it? For probably about six years. No Father Ted. No Father Ted. Because it was, was, uh, at first it was sacrilegious. Right. because in England, Father Ted's about funny Irish people. In Ireland, it's about funny priests. And we were yet to get to that stage because we weren't listening to their weird accents or anything like that. We were like, this is about our religious institutions. And some things were so on the nose. Um, <laughs> and I was there. I remember going, oh, my God, the jokes. And this hilarious woman, Mrs. Doyle, like bent over and her and she wasn't like a woman in drag. She was a, a female actor being so funny as this elderly lady and that the fact that Father Jack was this guy was saying feck and they were talking about Irish things and it was about us like it was our story and our priest I cu- and I ran down to my mother and I woke her up and I tried to tell her oh mommy you have to come upstairs you have to come upstairs and see this thing and she's like I go away from me and I was like it's priests and and, it's a, it's a, it's a, and she must have thought I was like having some kind of seizure I never saw that program again until like four years later and it came onto Irish TV and exploded on and all of a sudden it was okay it wasn't just this cult thing right and it had that was one of the most influential things on me because I remember thinking we could be on TV. And then around that same time of being a teenager, they started showing the Laughter Lounge from Dublin on TV. And on that was Tommy Tiernan and Deirdre O'Kane. Mm-hmm. And Tommy Tiernan, and I still never saw Stand Up Live, but, and again, it wasn't necessarily stand up. It was like comedy on TV. And if I looked at what I saw as stand-up growing up, it was 50% female, Deirdre O'Kane, and 50% male, which is Tommy Tiernan. And Tommy spoke like me and did stories in the exact same way I grew up listening and telling stories. And 
when I got to university and I got into this all-male British sketch group, even though we were in Ireland. Where'd you go it was to university? Most, uh, Trinity in Dublin. Okay. And I just auditioned for this thing. I knew I was funny. I liked making people laugh. And they were like, do you want to get into the... And so I auditioned with this, like, mostly group of English lads. What year are we talking here? Uh, it would have been 2002. And again, I'd come out of Kildare. And in school, I wrote all of the plays. I starred in all of the school plays. I gave myself the main parts in all of them. And when I arrived in Trinity... I assumed everyone would have heard of me because I was in a year of over 60 people in Kildare Town, an all-girls school. So I was like, they've probably heard of me. And they didn't give a shit at all. But it gave me a sort of, I think, not a confidence that I'd achieved anything, but just a lack of awareness that I should be worried about anyone else or what they thought. Yeah. And when I went, like, for me, I was in an all-girls school. I was the funniest person in my school. Which is uh, so important, isn't it? To, yeah. To and not have that voice. To know, I was so telling unaware you, like, of it. Your shit, your yeah, shit. exactly. And that only came afterwards. Right. But at least in my formative years, I grew up in an all female house. I was the funniest person in my house, which wasn't difficult. But <laughs> I had seven aunties, 17 cousins, 15 of them were women, um, came from a matriarchy in a massive way where the female voice was quite the loudest, powerful one. Everyone wanted me to kind of sing songs and do stuff when I was growing up. I entertained my family. Um, then when I went to school, I went to an all-female school and, and was educated by just women teachers until I was 18. And I wrote all the school plays. I played all the male parts, all the female parts. If we needed a guy, I was the man. If we needed a woman, I was the lady. Like I just did all the parts. And then I got into this all-male sketch group. And it only now I look back and work out why I got so upset with things. But I I didn't know really what was happening and, and a lot of the ways that I was sort of pushed to the side. Because also, I came from just a very normal religious state school. And a lot of the guys in the sketch group were extremely educated, privately educated in Ireland and in the UK. And they they had been trained up in oratory and public speaking. Mm -hmm. So when we go to debate whether a sketch could go in or not, I remember feeling like I didn't have the words. I knew when I was on stage I could be funny. And I ever I'd never had a bad gig in that sketch group. Right. But and we did you just like didn't give two a good Edinburgh's, account of yourself. But when I you couldn't were debate against someone who was trained in oratory why I thought this sketch. And I remember sometimes stuttering and I, I still get like this sometimes. My words don't come out as easily if I'm in an argument or something, because I, I I feel like I don't have the my brain hasn't been trained to be structured into point one, point two. And in conclusion, this is why your sketch won't work. Yes. And I'm like, no, 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 but I can make it funny because the because, you know, when you come in and, and, and like there'll be like a ah, and then and, and, and the sound will be like, oh, no, what are you doing here? And, and it'll just be funny. That doesn't argue well. Yeah. And now I look back and I think, God, I was I didn't have the skill set, but in a way, I'm, I'm glad I didn't know what was happening. But from university, I went to drama school. And when I came out of drama school, I got kind of back into comedy, fell back into comedy because I wasn't getting acting work. And um, only afterwards, I I was even aware of the idea that women, like any issue around women, I was flabbergasted that it was even an issue. I was like, what are you bloody talking about? Until I was 20, into my 20s, I only you, became aware of like, you mean that's like actually the, something people talk about. Right. The, the, the whole notion mind. of like, are women as funny as men? Yeah. Right. I couldn't, be- I couldn't believe <clears throat> that was something people talked about. I'm surprised that it was something people talked about in the noughties. I mean, I remember those conversations happening in the 80s. Are you mad, Adam? I'm even dubious about going into this now. I still get asked about it in interviews. 
as a woman really? who is doing the bloody job and making thousands of pounds. They go, and what do you think? Do you think women are, can be as no. funny? And you're like, oh, literally in interviews in this current Not year recently. and we're only into, we're really? only into January. Yes. Wow. And it's so boring because the subtext is, do you think you're biologically less able to be funny? Because that's yeah. what it is. That yeah, is, <laughs> that is the, what it boils down to. And you're like, yeah. how can you not see this is to even push it out there? So I get, I realized I was sort of tentatively walking into this chat with you and I'm like, oh, could I even be bothered to talk about it? Because it's so boring. <laughs> but like, yeah, it is. It, it boggled my mind growing up. And I'm, I'm very, the one when I, kind of talk about well what's what if you're trying to look for positives about the maybe but slightly you must negative have seen things it about in the way the context you of um just what people are used to culturally for, for, well, for me growing up culturally i had deirdre right. kane and tommy there was no one of the most famous comedians in ireland was deirdre kane yeah so one of the other ones was tommy tiernan and as you they said they were both you, irish and both look a bit like me yeah and as you said you grew up in a you grew up surrounded mainly yeah. by women. So, yes, it, it, it could have made much sense. I suppose... Um, this is the problem with representation on... I remember, is I'm not sure how to pronounce her um, name properly, but Oscar winner Lapita Nyong'o, she said when she saw Whoopi Goldberg growing up in Africa, when she saw Whoopi Goldberg on TV, it was a watershed moment because her dolls were white, her Barbies were white. She mm. didn't see anyone being a lead in a movie who looked like her just telling a story about dating or something mm -hmm. like that, that it wasn't a specific story about being a black person. And it's so important to see yourself in some way. And if you don't see yourself, how are you supposed to aim to be that? Because mm -hmm. it doesn't say, and sometimes I do think, do you know what? If people think I'm absolutely useless on panel shows or don't like me, at least they're seeing me do it. So come and be better than me then. Come mm -hmm. and be better. I don't care. So when you started doing comedy, did you come over to England fairly quickly? No, I, uh, so I started, as I say, comedy in university in Dublin. Right. Doing a sketch. We did two Edinburgh's. And again, I didn't have a clue what we were doing. I didn't even know what a sketch was. Yeah. I knew just we had to make a story last two and a half minutes roughly and have an end to it. But I didn't, I'd never seen sketch comedy or anything like that. I just wanted to do little characters and silly bits and jokes and do the audience laugh. Um, and then I uh, had a breakup at university and I decided I would go to drama school in England to get away from it all. I would move from that land mm. to England. Swap one drama for another. For another, thank you very much. And I went to uh, drama school for two weird, weird years where we had to do like historical dance for two years. And you're like, lads, are you sure you're What's not just... What's historical dance? Historical dance is... Uh, it's hey, very nonny, hard. No. It is a bit of hey, nonny, no. There's moments where you literally walk up to someone, go raise your eyebrow, 
and then walk back. You know the sort of dancing in Pride and Prejudice where they manage to have like really okay. long conversations but yeah, never yeah, get out yeah. of breath. Ah, oh, Mr. Darcy, I see you turned up again. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. sort of reels mm-hmm. and things like that. Yes, exactly. And at the odd time there'll be a hop so no one gets yeah. sweaty. And then, I mean, no, I'm, I'm just picturing Michael Palin slapping John Cleese with a, <laughs> with yeah, a fish. It was those. <laughs> but you kind of feel like, lads, I could get the hang of this in a two-week course. Yeah. I don't need to do it for two years. My friend, uh, my friend Marie, and I went to drama school together and she's also Irish. She was in my class and she married one of my best friends, Colm, uh, who is a teacher, but also a farmer from Ireland. And when we tell him about drama school or as he calls it, clown college, because <laughs> one time we had to, I remember, paint the walls yellow using only our breath from our diaphragm. These would be, and you know, we have to be mud for an hour. Like this sort of thing actually happens. And he always had this theory <laughs> that the teachers of drama school would come into the staff room during their lunch breaks going, lads, You'll never believe what I just got them to do for an hour. <laughs> a fiver says I can't do it, get them to do it for another week. Have you seen the documentary about Jim Carrey? I have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I had um This is the this is called Jim and Andy the Great Beyond mm-hmm. about when Jim Carrey and I've talked about this as well mm-hmm. on the podcast before. I was mildly obsessed by it for a yes. time. Yes. And it's him doing uh, the film Man on the Moon about Andy mm-hmm. Kaufman. And he chose to stay in character as Andy Kaufman for better or worse, generally for worse as far as I can tell, mm. as far as the other actors on the set were concerned. Because yeah. Kaufman, of course, was quite a handful, a provocateur. Yeah. And Jim Carrey is throwing himself fully into the whole notion of being an irritant most yes. of the time. I, uh, for me, and this is where as an actor, as a I'm in some ways, I'm glad I didn't get successful very quickly. Not that I'm saying I'm successful now, but I didn't. When I got out of drama school, I immediately thought I was going straight to Hollywood to be in Hollywood movies. Thank you. And I didn't. I had bleach blonde hair and Irish accent. I wanted to do English parts of the national and no one was hiring me. And I ended up like writing comedy and then getting into stand up, et cetera, et cetera. But um in a way, it's good to teach you a bit of humility. Mm-hmm. There are certain moments, you know, when he was um, really poking the guy before he went into the boxing match. Mm. And to get into a boxing match where there's a crowd around you and you're working yourself up. Yeah. And I understand saying that boxing match scene where he's going around and he's trying to drive up the energy of the audience. And I get that staying in character. And I'm like, yes, that would feed the scene and that would make everyone else's job better because the camera guy can swing around and pick up uh, reaction shots of this audience who've been whipped into a frenzy. There's all those things that you can do for a scene. Mm. It's the backstage bits where it's like someone else maybe didn't get to thrive because you decided you were more important and your process was more important. And that's kind of, I suppose, what happens with a lot of the, even if you look at the Me Too campaign, a lot of that stuff that happened, say with Louis C.K. and people might have been like, oh, those comedians overreacted. But what if those incidences that maybe some people were like, well, he has his genius and that's just what he needed. But what if, what he needed was to the detriment of someone else potentially becoming a genius or it pushes out other people to the side and they can't do their best work. That's for me when someone's got to take a reality check and you can't have everything you want. Uh, like, for example, I was doing this TV show recently and I had to give like a monologue and I could hear a girl whispering in the background and I had to stop it. And even though the monologue was funny and I sort of might have ruined the atmosphere slightly. I was like, oh, lads, can no one talk? This is really difficult to focus. They were whispering in the background. That's one moment where you're like, yeah, that person needs to shut up so I can do my job a yeah. bit better. And you and you work out the balance of those things and how you say it. Yeah. Um, have you ever had a proper meltdown on set? <sighs> meltdown. I mean, I don't think that's in your wheelhouse, is it? 
It it would be um it would be more um certain uniony things if people take the piss. Mm. So I remember being on a job before and they hadn't clear like everyone needs a lunch break. And they were like, oh, we, we're going to take you off your lunch break early to get some makeup checks done for press and the, for press for the show. And they hadn't just asked us in advance. And I knew because my sister's a costume designer. So I'm very aware, not that everyone should be, but of what life is like backstage. But we start our jobs at 7 a.m. And people really do need an hour sometimes if they've been told they're getting an hour. I knew if I only had a 40 minute lunch break then makeup and hair are going to have a 35 minute lunch break because they have to go into their trailers five minutes before me, do all my checks, sit around. So if I say yes to that, no one's getting an hour long lunch break. And that means if you need your to send some emails, ring your kids, check in on stuff in that hour, you don't get it. And so I get a little uniony in those moments that I'm like, every time you sort of pull a thread of certain things, it pulls away till eventually you're sort of you're they're taking yeah, yeah just a little yeah. and then there are certain moments and it's all about how you deal with things exactly. um, that normally and this is the thing if you create a lovely atmosphere on any set people will do more on for you of people Annie. of Annie I get this so much about the way I say Annie <laughs> I like it I get so much who's Annie people say I'm from a different country Adam <laughs> And that's how we say Annie. We didn't ask for the language. We were perfectly happy speaking our old Gaelic tongue. But then Adam Buxton's grandparents came over. The sun will come out. <laughs> Annie Moore, Annie One. Annie. Oh, that's the one thing in my English accents I get so paranoid I about. I like it. Is that go, like if I'm doing an English accent or something and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that anyone's turned up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, 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 can I do it again? Say any. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think. Um, Have you seen the the clip of David O. Russell um, going insane on the set of I Heart Huckabees? No. With Lily Tomlin. No. And uh, who's the other actor? Jason Schwartzman. And I think Dustin Hoffman was mm-hmm. on that set as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty special. Yeah. Because it goes on and on and oh. on. And he's just going nuts. Yeah. Yelling and screaming. Oh, and then he God. he disappears out of a door in the at the back of the set. And you can hear him yeah. carrying on rattling, screaming. It's got fucking bullshit. Yeah. Stomping around. And then he appears again through, through another door, <laughs> a different door in the set. Like it's a joke almost. And he carries on ranting. And I'm not fucking in another thing and I'm not putting up with that bullshit from you. It is funny though. It gets, it, it gets me. Uh, I mean, I, I don't deal. But also when you're angry to come out a different door and for, yeah. for you to know it You've to be funny. You've got to see it. It's on funny. YouTube. Oh. I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. And um, I mean, I tend to, I don't like confrontation. The awkward conversations are harder to have than the fights. And we do, we don't live as much as we could because of a fear of awkwardness. And that's one thing I've massively learned in the last few years. Like go into it and see what happens and be prepared to be critiqued yourself when you mm-hmm. do. And then you might, you'll end up, it's, it's part of your life's work. It's like, it's like free therapy. It's like free life work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because I understand where a fear of confrontation comes from. It's a fear of like uh, not wanting to hurt other people, not afraid of what you might say. Well, it's also it's also um, because you're not sure about your own position. Mm, yeah, and also you you're often told when you worry about things that actually the other person's probably not even thinking about it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm. Like um, 
you can easily get yourself into a state. I, I do this thing a lot. If people don't reply to an email or something mm. as Why quickly as I expect, that, yeah. you know, I start projecting like, what have mm. I done? Are they upset about this? Me Are they too. Upset about I do that, that all the time. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I've often spoken to people about it and I'm, I'm reminded, yeah, you know, mate, they're probably not even thinking about you at all. They're just But like, I think it's to have the balance though, Adam, because the, the fact that you do worry, you know that thing in John Ronson's The Psychopath Test? Mm-hmm. If you're ticking off stuff on the on the list, but you're worried that you might be a psychopath, you're not a psychopath because the very idea of you worrying that you might be harmful to someone means that you're not a psychopath. And so, of course, if it uh, you can get to a point with worrying what people think where it takes over your life and you're afraid to do anything. But the idea, the the core idea of that, I, I'd like to think, means you're a good person. You hope you haven't hurt, any, hurt yeah, anyone. You, but you're also, are... you're also aware of the things that aren't so great about you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and you don't, maybe you don't necessarily want to deal with those. But the difficulty, that those difficult conversations, Adam, that is where real life is. Ashling, are you okay to talk about your pa? Yeah. Um, in November of last year, t- mm-hmm. 2017, mm-hmm. I read a, a piece that you wrote for The Guardian about your father and about his death, mm-hmm. which happened when you were very young. Mm-hmm. And first of all, what was the reason that you wrote the piece? Were you, how come you uh, ended up writing that? Um, there was a few reasons recently, uh, recently really. Um, I... My father took his own life, for those that don't know, and uh, wrote this article for The Guardian um, about it. Part of me uh, had never talked about it, so it was a very sort of public way to go and talk about it. But I also realised that maybe as my profile is slightly raising, um, it's something that when it's thrown at you, it's so... I didn't want it to be thrown at me in an interview and for someone else to describe the words. And so I thought at least if I wrote it in my own words that I could you would be give it to... give the story and, and his death and him the best send-off rather right. than someone else taking the story a little bit. Yeah. The second reason was I do a lot of work with mental health charities and a part of me felt a little bit uh, two-faced about it, that I'm like hoping people will open up more and men talk more. Why don't you talk more about your feelings? And yet here I was not talking about my own story and something I felt almost... For a long time, I actually felt like there was a, a box on the top of my neck that wouldn't let any of the any of the words come out about it. Um, my father took his own life when I was three and I didn't know that. I didn't know that's how he died until I was 13 and my mother decided to tell us. And I it sort of rocked my whole world because I'd been very, even though he was not alive for most of my life, I'd felt like a daddy's girl. I felt like, and it still upsets me sometimes when I see my friends with little three-year-olds and how connected they are because that's how I felt a very deep connection to him. And then 
Uh, and you felt that connection through stories and photographs? Stories, and- photographs. Physically, his presence had been, again, it was just myself, my sister and my mother growing up in the countryside. But for my first three years of my life, it was myself, my dad and my sister. And I, I know he loved me very much. And did you but, have actual memories of yeah, him? Yeah, I do. I've got, about, I've got about five that I'm pretty sure are real. And then there are other ones that you're like, do you always take what is real in your memory? Like in all the five memories, he's wearing the same outfit, for example. I do believe the stories are real, but I see them like a like a like a camera person would see them. So I remember him throwing me up in the air. Uh, I remember um, he he was a vet and I he used to bring me around in the car a lot. And I still whenever I'm in a hospital and get these medicinal smells, something medicinal I have this whole visceral feeling in my body like I, I'm that there's something that was just specific to being in that car with my father. And that's it's a memory that comes. It, it feel I can feel it in my body. It's a really weird thing just with medicinal um, smells. Um, I remember him. Uh, I remember me seeing him. I thought I didn't like going to sleep with the light off. And I thought if I covered over my hands and turned on the light, like he would think that I was in the darkness. Like I didn't get that when I put my hands over my eyes, he didn't see the same thing as me. So I remember him coming in going, did you turn on the light again? And I put on my my hands over my eyes and go, no, because my hands were in, I could now, I was now in the dark because I put my hands over my eyes. So I thought that was able to trick him. Uh-huh. Um, so little things like that, there's snapshots. Um, and then sometimes as a child, your memory gets changed because you look at pictures so much that you don't know if, they become so omnipresent in your life and you search for them so much that you start to make up stories yourself. Yes, exactly. Um, but definitely there's a... As far as you knew, he just died Yeah, and I remember... Of an illness or... Uh, yeah, a back accident. He'd hurt his back very severely uh, when he was like helping a, a, a horse give birth, basically. Right, okay. And so he'd been in quite a lot of pain uh, physically. Um, but, uh, and I remember there were a lot of suicides in my town. It's quite a big, I mean, it's a big problem in England. It's a big problem in Ireland. We all know the stats. It's the biggest killer of men under 45 uh, in the UK and Ireland. More than car accidents, more than cancer. It's the biggest killer of men. And is men themselves. Men, why are you always killing things? Cut it out, men. Um, But I remember there was a huge, uh, just like, by the time I found out about my father, I had already known about three or four suicides. And um, Why did your mum choose to tell you when she did? I think she thought I was about to start secondary school, coming out of primary school. My sister was 10. She thought in her head that we would be old enough to deal with it. There's now, God love her, there's still, like when my father took his own life, it was still a criminal offence in Ireland. <laughs> so it only became decriminalised in 1989. But also it, it was a decriminalised to be gay in 1992. Yeah. You couldn't get condoms without prescription until 1995. What, what, what is the practical implication of it being criminalised? <sighs> uh, I know it sounds silly, but there's uh, where can you get buried in a graveyard? Right. Uh, do your assets go back to your your partner? Oh, right. Uh, there's there's implications of like if what you if the if you committed a criminal offence. But most of those yeah. really just impact the surviving the, the surviving family. family. There was a time in Irish history, I think, up until the fifties, where the punishment for attempted suicide was hanging. <sighs> that's <laughs> that's the country for you. But um. Yeah, I suppose with that comes all the, not only is there the religious sentiment under it all, it's the idea that God gave you life and in some way you've thrown it back in his face. Yes, 
And that no, is actually I mean, a new I, bit of teaching. That's, I understand that, that idea of suicide is actually only in the last 300 years. There was a time in Roman history where you could very calmly apply to kill yourself and you would go to the Senate and they were, it was like a noble way to die. But as long as you did it properly and got your affairs in order, then you had every right to do it. And then your family would be looked after. Oh, really? So the idea of suicide, that that is w- the rules on what it's supposed to be mm. are sort of are new in the same way uh, rules on being gay are, are sort of new ideas in the last couple of hundred years. But I think what also happens is, and I, from the overwhelming responses of people that I got after the article, which I really didn't expect, I didn't expect it to sort of be read by as many people. But the overwhelming thing is that A, when someone dies from suicide, the people around you don't know what to say because what do you say? Oh, I'm so sorry the person who clearly wanted to die died. That's kind of, what do you say? Then there's also the people grieving who I feel from all the people who got in touch with me fall into two camps. One is the feeling of responsibility that I could have done something. And that tends to be parents uh, of kids who uh, took their own life or... Um, uh, boyfriends or girlfriends or, you know, partners who feel in some way responsible for the person who passed away. And they have this dirty guilt, like maybe I missed something. And that is the unspeakable thing. Maybe, maybe I missed I, something or maybe I was a maybe factor. I said, maybe I was a factor. Maybe I did something. Maybe I said the wrong yeah. thing. Jesus, we had a fight. Could I have stepped in? And the answer is you couldn't have. That's not it, it doesn't happen that quickly. In no situation is it actually really that snap a decision. Um, like it, it's a been building up from all of how a, a person's psyche gets put together. The other overwhelming feeling is tends to be from the person who they were responsible for, of which I would be an example. Um, so the children of people who took their own lives, the sometimes the wife of someone who really needed the support of the husband. And there's this feeling that you love this person, but you hate them right now because how dare you leave me? How dare? And the idea of selfishness. And that is the worst thing that you would get out of your mouth about the person. It's a scary thing we all don't want to feel, that that person was selfish. That's the worst possible feeling you can feel about this person who's clearly in pain. And Did you feel all these things yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, especially the latter. I thought, you are my father and you should have stayed around. And that was my very simple understanding about it. And I'm angry at you. And you don't have to see my mother bring us up on her own or take us on holidays on her own or sit through our school plays on our own and all that stuff. And I was like, you chose that life for her. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little no, upset. No, I'm sorry, Ashley. No, 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 it's okay. Um, but We don't have to talk the, about it, you know, if you don't want to. Um, well, I'll finish off this point. Uh, uh, I'll finish up on, on that note, though. My understanding as an adult being near to his age and seeing how complicated and messy life and humans are and watching this amazing documentary, which I would uh, recommend everyone to watch, which is Grace and Perry's documentary, All Man. And it has this bit about this woman, which I talk about in the article, just saying, I don't think you wanted to die forever. It was just in that moment. And that's, that had never occurred to me before. That it was just, Jesus, life is too much in this second I needed to end. Um, but also, it's surely not, in a lot of cases, irrational choice it's it's oh yeah it, it, no but everyone knows that everyone knows that with their head brain every i think every um person who's left behind if that's even the right way to say it knows 
taking your own life is not a rational decision. Everyone knows someone was very sad and heartbroken and then everyone knows that no one did that to make a point. It's the old thing is it's a terminal solution to a, a momentary problem. It's that you left behind or feeling like you're left behind thinks that, but something about me and our love should have stepped in because if it was the opposite way around. I would have chosen the opposite. I would have chosen to live for you mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. And that's, um, I think that's what it boils down to. And that feeling is from your gut. It's from your heart. It's in your body. It's not in your head. And those two things are fighting, I think, when you're going through grief. And it looks like they're still fighting. Yeah, I think why I get obviously emotional about it is because A, the subject matter. B, well, I hadn't talked about it for so long. And uh, and the the effect, the amount of people who got in touch with me. Yeah, yeah. Thousands of messages of people in the exact same situation. And yeah. and th- th- that was very overwhelming uh, mm. to get those messages. But I also felt incredibly privileged that I was someone people came to talk to about it. But then there's also the effect of like, my family hasn't asked to be in the public life. And they were, my sister and my mother were very happy for me to write that article. But say for my mother, uh, a lot of people were also happy to read that article. And my mother had to sort of maybe redo the grieving in the last two months with people coming up to her in the street and she's not in the in the public world and she's not, you know, everyone in the town knows who her daughter is sort of thing. Um, and I think that's been a lot for her. But also in a way, I never got to go to my dad's funeral. And so one thing that happened after the article was all of these family members, close family members who have stayed silent and never spoken to me because, again, confrontation issue. They didn't want to upset me. Started telling me the stories, funny stories, lovely stories, the sort of stories you tell at, at, at a parent's funeral, as I'm sure you had at your dad's funeral. Uh-huh. People come up to you and tell you lovely things. And I suppose I didn't get that. All these people I knew, I didn't know any of these memories. And I was starved of them growing up. Like all I wanted to know was who was he? What were the funny things he did? Tell me about this person who's half of me. But I didn't, I couldn't get the words out. And there was this silence around the subject that was through no fault of anyone's. It's it's cultural, it's religious. It's how exactly do you turn up at someone's house for Christmas and go, I'd like to talk to you about your father who killed himself. And I'm happy, you don't, you know, you don't want to upset someone. But actually what I've learned, and if there's anyone listening who's going through this, it is worth getting upset Because when you get upset, like what we were talking about earlier with confrontation, when you get upset, the other side of that is getting better. Yeah, you bust through to something real. You bust through to something real. And I honestly have felt like a different person since that article came out and since it's opened up chats with my family. It's I got to sort of have I feel a little bit like I in weird way buried my father three months ago because I feel a lightness in my shoulders about it. And when I I handed that article into The Guardian in August and it didn't come out till November. And I, I was a bit nervous constantly each weekend going, is this the weekend it comes out? I don't, I don't know. Um, like I wasn't sure when it would. Um, and But after I handed it in to The Guardian, I cried the entire weekend mm-hmm. because of this like space that had been left in my head. I felt like it was all of a sudden gone or all these years of like holding on to something. Like even now when I talk about it, the pain is in my throat, mm-hmm. not my heart or my tummy because that's how it's where it was so hard to sometimes physically get the words out about it. And most people who got in touch with me, especially with the subject of suicide, it feels unspeakable. It feels 
absolutely unspeakable. And that's what we have to change because when I was growing up, there were no stories and I didn't know. We knew people in the town, but I remember one time being on this the school bus with this girl whose brother had taken her own life uh, a couple of months beforehand. And we were both on the, we didn't necessarily get along, but we were both on the bus and I wanted to reach across her to her and say, I know what it's like. And I couldn't, we weren't in a world where we t- spoke about it. And I was like, God, I'd love to know how you feel and I'd love you to know how I feel. And I would like, if I heard the word suicide anywhere, my ears would prick up to think, God, is there, is there a story here that I can hear? Is there something, is, is, is there something that I can get? It's some answers, some way to finding an answer. And there wasn't, there were no stories, there were no people. And again, and I'm quite aware, like, even as I'm chatting about this now, it's not like we're making jokes and sometimes it can be a bit like, oh, the energy around it's so maudlin. What I wanted to do with the article was in some way make it a little bit funny. So it wasn't the toughest read because you don't want to feel like you're about to go into a cold plunge pool every time you have to think about something. Like it can be funny and it can be a funny subject to feel all the silly, messy things that, that come with it. And, mm. and you, wrote, really you wrote him a letter at the end of the article. Mm. Was that something you did in the process of writing that article? Yeah, I'd I'd written over the years sort of as trying to do therapy for myself. I've, I felt like I'd written him letters. Um. I was glad I only did that article when I did because some of them were so angry. Some of the old versions of my laptop were so angry and I almost didn't recognise myself because of all the work I've done on myself. I almost didn't recognise myself from those like five years ago letters because there was such a rage still bubbling. Like you don't know what you've done to your wife and that, you know, all this sort of stuff. Right. And. I'm sort of glad I wrote that article on the other side of it because I think why why I wrote it as well was like, here's my process to where I've gotten to acceptance. I hope it helps some other people because it's messy. It's um, Grief is messy and suicide is an even messier type of grief. And the more people who I think talk about how messy it is and say how ugly it can be, I hoped the... The article was about being alive, not about being dead. Mm. And I... It was really a lovely piece and it was very sad, obviously. I didn't know that about you. But um, it was tremendously optimistic and and not... uh, Yeah, it had quite a different tone to a lot of stuff that you read these days. You know, you you read a lot about awful experiences that people have had, but there's sometimes... Maudlin a lot of the time. Yeah, maudlin and, and, and just... Perhaps, I don't know, you you don't ever want to judge someone who's been through something terrible. Mm -hmm. That's the last thing they need. Yeah, yeah. And I was really, that's why I wanted to write a bit about that. But but what did I get from my father's death? Yeah. And I genuinely have gotten so much. Like I really have. I've, I've. I've gotten the ability to cry easily in dramatic scenes in acting. Uh, But I've, I've, it's given me a different type of spirit and, and an appreciation of life. And so... Uh, that's not me trying to be Sesame Street about it. That is, uh, you have to try and come out of your story if you want to be the, if you want to be in some way the dedication to someone who's passed before you. And actually, I'll I'll, I'll finish chatting about it on this, but um, I have a crystal healer, Adam, obviously. A crystal healer? A crystal healer. Someone that heals crystals. Uh, heals crystals, go rounds and talks to rub bits of quartz. Goes, you're not, mate. quartz. <laughs> and puts sellotape around them. I have gone to this healer person who just chills my vibes. And he was saying at the very bottom of this sort of tree is despair and 
sadness. And what people try to get to from that is get back to happiness. But that is so unachievable. It's not our natural state to stay happy. If it was, we wouldn't work as hard to stay alive. We need to have the struggle to stay alive. It's how humans uh, came to survive. And if you can get, rather than from absolute despair, if you can crawl your way up the tree from hopeful despair to anxiety and then up to hope before in any way trying to aim towards happiness, that is a much better place to get to. If you can hope that tomorrow won't feel as bad, you've been in the house for a month. Maybe you haven't gotten all your pages of your book done. I hope tomorrow I got a little bit more done. I get a little bit more done than I did yesterday. I hope it's just something you can achieve and you're not setting yourself up for failure. Mm-hmm. To decide you're going to have the best gig of your life or you're going to be really happy or you're going to love this person forever or whatever it is. It's such high expectations and romantic expectations of what life is. But if you can hope that tomorrow will be a bit better for anyone in listening who's feeling a bit sad, um, that really resonated with me. That just this fingers crossed attitude to life rather than um, rather than a one of extremes of of sadness or not that 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 really that got me mm. because what depression is is a lack of hope it's hopelessness and if you can get back to if you can work if you're in a state of depression at the moment if you can work back towards hope a bit that's that's how you that's how you get that's how you get better fade in inspirational music should I play something else on the piano? Do it. Wrap it up <laughs> with I some... Wrap it up. Will with I wrap it up with Adam? Yo, yo, maybe a rap. A rap about hope. I really don't... I really don't know. What will I... What will I play that's... Um, uh, oh. Uh, wait a minute. I'll play, I'll play the only song that's slightly impressive. <laughs> our podcast, Adam. What have we learned, Adam? (laughs) We've learned you're quite good at the piano. (laughs) I feel like I'm playing this drunk. We've also learned that it's good to have difficult conversations. It is good. Yeah, you're right. I know I, I keep myself on my own too often. It's not the natural way for humans to be, Adam. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace.
continue. Hey, welcome back, listeners. Ashling B there. Thank you very much indeed to her for giving up her time and talking to me so candidly. If you'd like to read the article that she wrote about her father's death for The Guardian, it's still available. I guess you just type, you know, Ashling B, father, The Guardian. You'll probably find it. And it's really very well written and moving. So I recommend it. Uh, The programme I'm doing for Radio 4, You're Doing It Wrong, it's called, continues to go out on Wednesday mornings currently at 9.30 on the Big British Castle, Radio Number 4. And it is uh, a series of short programmes about various aspects of modern living, that could possibly be done differently or that I certainly feel I often do a bad job at. It's mainly a series of conversations with various people involved with things like thinking about the environment and uh, food, diet. This week's one is about diet, I think. Last week's was about parenting. The first one was about various ways that we work in the modern world. It's really just motivated by the idea of exploring alternatives. It's also available as a podcast. So if you are unable to listen to it live on Wednesdays at 9.30, you can download a podcast which is slightly longer as well, I think. About nearly 20 minutes as opposed to about 15 on the radio. And once again, uh, thank you to Emily Knight, who was the producer the writer, the researcher, the editor. She has done a lot of work on the programme. So thanks to her for getting me involved. What else? Uh, The Adam Buxton app is up and running. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. If you haven't got the free Adam Buxton app, what the shit are you doing with yourself? Why do you need it? Well because it's the one-stop shop for all things Adam Buxton related. You can go on there and you can listen to all the previous episodes of the podcast. They're all collected there for you conveniently. You can look at lots of videos that I've compiled into playlists that I've done over the years. Uh, There is bonus content on there extra podcasts that for the time being are exclusive to the app it's just fun city i would describe it as fun city imagine a city where everybody's having fun all the time plus it's um eco-friendly and very progressive very diverse very i mean it's like a utopia well that's what the app's like it's exactly like that It points the way forward to an incredibly bright future. Don't forget there is currently merch aplenty available if you're a podcat and you would like to get yourself a beautifully designed mug, t-shirt, poster, digital download of some of the jingles, etc, etc. That's also available to visit via the app or the blog. 
adam-buxton.co.uk, which is just a computer version of the app. Oh dear, it's boring this stuff, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, it has to be done a little bit because you have to remind people that these things exist. But it's boring to say and it's quite boring to listen to. So I apologise. Let's have a hug. Ah, oh, you smell nice. Hey, they fixed the tap in the kitchen. I know, it's been great. It's been amazing. It's almost worth having something go wrong for the period afterwards when it gets fixed. Don't you think? I mean, we, had, we were suffering with the, with the drippy tap, which you can hear, I think it was in the Paul Thomas Anderson episode, at the end of the Paul Thomas Anderson episode, when I uh, made a little mashup of some of the sounds that the tap would make constantly, which um, were really decreasing the quality of life at Buckles Towers. Anyway, that's all been sorted out now, I'm very happy to say. Tackling all the big issues, as usual, what else can I tell you? I think that's probably enough, isn't it? For this week. Thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for production support and to Jack Bushell for additional editing. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Seamus. Thanks once again to my friends Mark and Zivi, my old pals who kindly let me use their front room in London to record in for this episode. Thanks again, finally, to Ashling B. And thanks to you very much indeed for continuing to download, support, like, and subscribe. Until next time, take care, please. And remember, I love you. Bye!